This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen in the last couple Academy Awards shows the power of entities outside of the traditional Hollywood studios, companies like Netflix and Amazon and others making inroads. To that point, Hollywood has seen a bit of a decline at the box office at times over the last couple of years. Studios aren't making the quote-unquote intriguing film as much anymore. They're putting their faith in the big-budget films and the big-budget remakes. That's in part why we have seen the success of Star Wars again, as well as the Marvel superhero films. But there continues to be a concern about the future of Hollywood. Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Fritz takes a look at these issues in his new book, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. And it's great to have Ben back on the show with us today. Ben, great to talk to you again. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Uh, so kind of give us your your state of, of the movie industry right now. You know, the state of the movie business right now is it is, you know, it is uh, becoming a franchise brand driven business, calling it even the movie business is not quite right anymore. You call it sort of called the cinematic brand business. That is a business that the major studios of Hollywood <clears throat> are in and all other types of films, especially, you know, your sort of mid-budget original movies for adults are becoming uh, an, an endangered species. They're, they're not very economically relevant to the major studios. And that business, the, the, the non-franchise, the non-Marvel superhero, Fast and Furious, Transformer business, is being quickly overtaken by some of the companies you mentioned, the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world. So then what did the Oscars just recently passed mean for you in terms of Hollywood? Because when you think about it, all of the films, or pretty much all of the films, really didn't have to do with the superhero genre. And obviously you have something, uh, you know, that in terms of uh, the films that were winners, The Shape of Water wins the Oscar this year. Yeah, yeah. And, the, the, I mean, the Oscars are increasingly becoming irrelevant. I mean, I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, the ratings are declining rapidly, and the reason the ratings are declining in large part is because they don't celebrate the movies that most people go to see. Right. I mean, The Shape of Water grows something like $50 million, and it, that's fine for what it costs, you know, but, um, you know, in the past, you, the Oscars were, gen were generally celebrating some of the most popular films of the year. You know, Rain Man won the Oscar, was a number one movie in America. Titanic, you know, number one movie. Lord of the Rings, number one. Terms of Endearment. These are movies that were number one or number two. Forrest Gump, these were very popular films. It's, it's almost impossible. You, you never see a top 10 film even nominated for Best Picture anymore, let alone win, because those films, again, are these big franchise movies. Those are what audiences love, especially around the world. And those are not the types of films that uh, the Oscars like to celebrate. How much of an impact do you think the Netflix and the Amazons of the world have had, and how much do you think they will continue to have moving forward? They're having a massive impact on Hollywood. They're disrupting all the traditional economics of television and movies. I mean, television they've already done. I think we all know that. Um, it's, it's inescapable um, how, many, you know, how, how much TV, you know, Netflix has become the TV diet for so many people. Now it's happening to movies. That, you know, they're not yet producing the $200 million major franchise films. Those are movies that are still worthy of a cinematic experience and still too expensive but they're quickly, you know, they started off with the really cheap indie movies like Manchester by the Sea, if you remember that, was yeah. an Oscar-winning film, and it was uh, distributed by Amazon. Um, and Netflix uh, got into that business, too. Um, they had a movie, Mudbound, this year that was nominated for Oscars. But they're moving up to, you know, they make Adam Sandler comedies. These are $50, 60000000 million movies. They just made this Will Smith film, Bright, that was almost $100 million. They're getting into the mid, mid even like 
let's say, lower upper or upper, upper mid budget films, the sort of star vehicles that studios used to be, you know, their bread and butter. So they're increasingly overtaking the lower to middle chunks of the film business and leaving only the upper echelon in terms of cost to uh, to the studios. And so because of that, and, and you kind of bring this out as a, as a theme in, in the book, yes. is that the studios, the traditional studios, really have made some poor business decisions in terms of opportunities that they may have been able to take advantage of to really expand, and, and they've missed on. Yeah, the studios, the studios definitely have been slow you know, to adapt in a, in, a, in a number of ways over the past, you know, decade or two. Um, you know, one, one story you may be thinking of in the book is, uh, you know, there's a lot in the book about the rise of Marvel. Marvel's clearly sure. the, most, the most significant, the most dominant movie company this century, without a doubt. If you want to look at the changes that have happened to Hollywood, Marvel is the company to look at. And there's a lot about them in this book. Um, and Marvel kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody in Hollywood seemed to see them coming. Um, which is why Disney ultimately bought them for $4 billion. Uh, back in the 90s, when Marvel was a comic book company, nobody cared about it. They were bankrupt. They had just come out of a protracted, terrible bankruptcy. They were desperate for cash. And Sony Pictures, which is a big focus of the book as well, because of, uh, I had access you know, to, the, to the inside decision-making there from the hack of the studio. Yeah. So Sony Pictures uh, went to Marvel. They wanted to get the rights to Spider-Man. They already had home video rights. They wanted to make a Spider-Man movie. They were looking to get the rest of the rights. The Marvel executives, who, again, wanted so much cash, they said, forget Spider-Man. We'll give you the movie rights to all of our characters, Captain America, Black Panther, Thor, Guardians of the Galaxy. You can have them all for $25 million. And this Sony lawyer who heard this went back to his bosses, and they they acted like it was Jack coming back with the magic beans. You know, they were like... Uh, what are you talking about? Nobody, no, nobody cares about all these other characters. Nobody wants to see a Black Panther movie. Nobody wants to see a Captain America movie. Just get Spider-Man. We don't want that deal. So, uh, yeah, they passed <laughs> on $25 million for all the Marvel characters. Cut to a decade later, Disney uh, bought them for $4 billion. Yeah, that's kind of an oops in terms of the business. I would say so. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of a big one. Well, and you talk, as you mentioned, you, you really delved into the Sony hack, and mm-hmm. you kind of look at it as, as context to understand what's really going on right now in Hollywood. Yes. I think, you know, this is a story I wanted to tell for a while as, as a journalist and author, you know, how Hollywood has transformed the century, how, it, how the original mid-budget movies died off and franchises came to dominate Hollywood, kind of the, fran- the franchise era of films is what I call it. But you know, it's a tough story to tell without having an, you know, a narrative hook. You, know, you want to tell it through the lens of one studio. No, no studio is ever going to invite a journalist to come in, sit in on all their meetings for a year. Uh, but the Sony hack was almost the next best thing. I had full access to all of their decision-making, all their hand-wringing, all the, all, the, you know, uh, all, all the drama they were going through in dealing with these changes. Sony was a studio that struggled with, with, the, with the transformation of the movie business from star-driven, from original idea-driven, to franchise and sequel-driven. So in the, book, we, in the book, we see the Sony executives grappling with these changes and it tells us a story of how Hollywood has grappled with these changes. Well, and obviously one of the big stories that will be playing out, well, it already is, but it's going to be playing out uh, over the next uh, several weeks and months, is the potential of the, of the Disney-Fox deal. And, and how that's going to change Disney, I think, even even more so. I mean, it says a lot about Fox and what Rupert Murdoch wants to focus on in terms of news and, and sports content. But for Disney, with the fact that they make this deal, knowing that they're going to have a streaming service next year, it really does speak volumes about what Disney wants to do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are two major themes you know, that are in the book that we are seeing playing out with this Disney-Fox deal. 
One is consolidation. The, the, the major studios, there's just too many of them for, right. the, for the current business. You know, back when, back when the movie business was booming and DVD sales were, were rising, you know, like crazy, they were skyrocketing, you know, six studios made sense. They can all make a lot of profits. Now the business is shrinking and there's not enough profits to go around. So when that happens to an industry, you see consolidation. And that is what's happening. The other big thing, as you mentioned, is Disney is getting into the streaming business. They need to compete with Netflix. If the studios don't get into digital distribution, they're going to get creamed by these tech giants. Netflix, Amazon, Apple is getting into original content now, too. So, and in order to do that, you actually need, uh, you need a wide variety of content to offer. You know, as you know, Netflix offers so much content, you can't believe it. Right. Disney, Disney is going to launch uh, their own family streaming service. They're launching an ESPN, ESPN sports streaming service. And in buying Fox, they're taking over Hulu, which will be an adult content streaming service. And Fox is going to you know, provide them with more content to put on those platforms. So in, in some respects, is the movie industry going through something that seemingly the record industry, the music industry had gone through in terms of obviously you're changing a, a lot of the technology behind it. But you are seeing all of these different uh, th- these different new platforms coming on to play mm-hmm. that, that 20 and 30 years ago, they were just, a, you know, maybe a thought in the mind of a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's absolutely comparable, you know, the, the, the way, I mean, obviously the way you produce content is very different, but what's comparable is that, is, that, is that digital technology, digital disruptors are changing the content production business and the content producers are slow to adapt. Um, and, and the number one thing that's changing it is subscription streaming, right? Subscription streaming on Spotify and its competitors now dominates music, and we all know that. And <clears throat> that's what's happening to video, right? I mean, so Netflix, again, is so dominant. Amazon Prime is becoming a big player. And there's a lot more to come. And that changes the economics of content. And in, in the music business, you also, you, so many traditionalists really know, you know the album where the artist puts out his or her you know, there are 10 or 12 tracks that go together. That really matters artistically. Turns out that's not how most people want to consume music. And ultimately what consumers want in the digital age is what they get. And the music business has had to adapt to people on streaming, switch, switching between tracks, putting together their own playlists. And that's going to happen in, in the movie business. A lot of traditionalists say, no, a movie is made to be seen in a theater. That is what a movie is. <clears throat> and that may be what the artists want. But that is not what a lot of consumers want, and the movie business either has to adapt to that or it's going to continue to get creamed. Ben Fritz from The Wall Street Journal is our guest. He is the author of the book The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send me a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I wanted to ask you this anyway, and you kind of seemingly hint at it right there with your last comments. Uh, Are you concerned about what the future of the movie industry would be 30 years out, maybe even less than that? Yeah, certainly less than that. I am. You know, um, look, I personally, you know, have no problem with watching movies at home, right? I mean, I I grew up in the DVD age, and that's how I watched most movies. Let's be honest, I went to theaters, but the majority of movies I watched at home on DVD. So it's not a big difference now to watch it via streaming platform or even on a, on a tablet. But there is, the, the, and I, I don't think there's something special about a, a big screen inherently, but what is special about a movie theater is the communal experience. And you see it with a few hundred people and everybody around the country is seeing it around the same time, which is when that movie comes out. It's not, when it's on your Netflix queue, you get around to it when you get around to it. But you know, the movies can become a cultural moment and they really can shape our culture when we're all seeing it together around the same time. You know, I think if Get Out had been on, a street, on Netflix, 
and we'd all seen it when we see it, it wouldn't have become this cultural conversation. Same thing is true for Black Panther right now. And that, in, in the age of we all stream it whenever we feel like it on whatever device we want, I yeah. feel like that could be lost, and that would be a shame. But one of the other things you bring up in the book is the fact that, that the Hollywood star uh, yeah. has become inconsistent in terms of their draw yeah. at, at the box office. Yeah, the, the star has been replaced by the brand, uh, has been replaced by the franchise, right? So it used to be you go to see the Tom Cruise movie, the Will Smith movie, the Julia Roberts movie. They, they were the most important brand. That's why they were paid so much money, $20 right. million plus per film. Uh, but now people are much more loyal to Marvel, to DC, to Fast and Furious, to uh, Mission Impossible, whatever it is that you love. And the movie sometimes, yeah, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, I like. You know, Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games. But go see any Jennifer Lawrence or Tom Cruise movie. People don't do that anymore, which is why movie stars, with rare exceptions, like maybe Dwayne Johnson, movie stars don't get 20 million plus very much anymore. And the idea of the star vehicle, as Hollywood used to call it, where anything this movie star wants to make, Hollywood eagerly ponies up $20 million for them to make it, that's gone. And uh, I tell that story in the book primarily through two Sony movie stars, Will Smith and Adam Sandler. Yeah who used to be, you know, they used to do whatever they wanted at that studio. And the Sony executives would joke, well, Will and Adam bought our houses. That was always a joke, to let Will and Adam do whatever they wanted to do. Now Will and Adam are essentially gone from Sony, and they both make movies for Netflix. That tells you a lot. Well, and and you again, you spend time talking about the Will Smith story, which obviously plays into our location a little bit, being here in Philadelphia, where Will Smith, you know, from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, was West Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, born and raised. That's right. And that's where we are right now. But but to see him come from West Philadelphia to Fresh Prince to Independence Day to now where he is, it's an amazing conversation kind of cycle that has played out. It is. You know, he, he, the rise and fall of Will Smith is the rise and fall of the movie star in the, in the modern age, you know, and he's still, you know, he's still very talented, but he's not somebody who can just do whatever he wants and get paid obscene amounts of money to do it anymore. People don't just go see a movie just because they love Will Smith. We have too yeah. many other great content uh, options. We were talking with uh, uh, Ben Fritz, who is the uh, author of the book, The Big Picture. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You have an interesting chapter in the book uh, about producers. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys you talk about is a Wharton grad. Uh, yeah. Dan Lin, yep. uh, who has certainly seen these ups and downs that we're seeing in this industry right now. Yeah, Dan is, Dan is sort of a great profile of what's happened to creative people in Hollywood now. Um, and he was an executive <clears throat> at Warner Brothers after he graduated from Wharton. And uh, then he became a producer, which is sort of a traditional path for someone in Hollywood. But he, he made that switch just at the time when DVD sales started plummeting and, and, the, and movie production started shrinking. And this, the economics of the movie business were changing rapidly. And the idea of being a producer and just making all these interesting movies that you like didn't work anymore. And um, Dan is thriving right now, and the reason he's doing it is because he drove the Lego movies. And if you've, you know, there's now yeah. three of them, there's a fourth one coming, that's a major franchise for Warner Brothers. And with a, as a producer, he essentially is the brand manager, both creatively and financially, for, for Lego. And uh, if you want to survive, I mean, if you want to survive as a creative person in Hollywood and really thrive, being attached to a franchise is critical. And, and, you know, the other interesting thing there is it used to be that really directors were the most powerful people in Hollywood um, and, you know, creatively speaking. And um, now it's the producers because the producers oversee the franchise. A director, you know, there's been different directors for each Lego movie. They come and go. 
um, but the producers are the ones who oversee it all and kind of meld it together and, 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 and have the vision for the franchise. And that's certainly why Dan is doing well right now, because he's the, he's the overseer, he's the manager for, for the Lego movies. What has he said about this shift in Hollywood over the last few years? Um, you know, I think Dan uh, Dan is a pragmatist, and I, I don't know that he's thrilled about it, but I think he sort of has realized this, you know, what, what Dan is trying to do is, is balance his responsibilities producing Lego, which he knows he knows that's why his business exists. He knows that's why he's valuable to Warner Brothers. It's because he keeps the Lego train running. And he wants them to be as interesting as they can creatively, you know? And he tries to bring in fresh new voices, and uh, he doesn't want them to become cynical because audiences will smell that and get sick of it. At the same time, he's created this new facility, a production facility called Rideback Ranch, where he's invited in other creative people, the writers, directors, uh, to help come up with new ideas. He's essentially using the Lego uh, profits to create a place where the Lego movies are built and also hopefully new ideas that may become the next franchise, you know, kind of on the... Uh, kind of riding on the coattails of Lego. So then do you believe that that in terms uh, of the growth of the independent film, and obviously we have a variety of, of film festivals that are geared to those mm-hmm. uh, those genres right now, do you think that we have the possibility, because of something like Dan would be doing or other producers out there, that we have the potential, I, I, and I preface that as potential, to mm-hmm. see an even bigger growth of those types of films in the future, not necessarily because you have the movie studios, but because you have the Netflix and the Amazons of the world. Yes, that's exactly what I see. Um, the movie, the, the way you'll see these independent movies you know, uh, continue to stay alive and hopefully even thrive is for companies that are making movies not to make profits from the movies, if that makes sense. So, <laughs> which, Netflix, which goes against the, the norm of what you would think. Yes, it is, right? It goes against everything Hollywood's done. But traditionally in Hollywood, you make a movie because you know, it costs $20 million and you hope you're going to gross 100 and make a profit of 20 or 30 on it or something. Yeah. Um, right? But now you know, Amazon makes movies so that you'll get more value out of your Prime subscription and be more engaged with the Amazon universe and buy more... Uh, you know, groceries and tents and sleeping bags and, you know, jewelry and books, hopefully, you know, all whatever stuff you buy from Amazon. That's what they all, that's why they're in the movie business. They don't have a P and L for each movie. Netflix makes movies to keep, hopefully make you get more value out of your Netflix subscription. You know, Fox Searchlight, which makes independent movies, they made The Ship of Water, they make a movie to make a profit on that movie. They want as many people as possible to see it so they can make a profit on it. Um, now, obviously, you can imagine it's very hard for Fox Searchlight to compete with a company like Amazon that doesn't care about making a profit on its on its individual indie films. What about the, the, the social component, which obviously we have seen play out in the last few months in and around Hollywood, uh, and, and all of the issues that have, have been brought up even in the last couple of years? I mean, obviously, we have the Me Too movement right now, but you also had uh, Oscars So White and, and so many other issues in the last couple of, uh, couple of years. How, ha- how are those issues you think going to continue to change Hollywood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. People are, you know, people are very aware of two things you mentioned. One is that, you know, they, it used to be you talk about diversity for a while, and then it kind of goes away, and you go back to your normal way of doing business. And the other one was powerful people could kind of get away with behaving however they wanted, you know, um, uh, within, when I say within reason, I mean within something that most of us don't consider reasonable anymore, but Hollywood used to, when it came to abusive behavior. Um, by by bosses, you know, usually men, and um, there's so much scrutiny, you know, for good reason now that that I do see that changing. I, I think uh, you know you you really can't get away with not having more more inclusive representation uh, both in front of the camera and behind it these days. 
And, you know, the, the worst behavior by Hollywood executives is also just not being tolerated by, by millennials anymore. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's great. And that, but that is, I mean, I was talking to a studio executive the other day and he was like, so much is changing. He's like, he's like, I barely understand the economics like this anymore. I can't understand consumer behavior. Right. And at the same time, I'm so worried about like the, you know, how, how people behave within my own studio or having to change that rapidly at the same time. It's a, to say that you know that their world is being rocked would be uh, would be an understatement. Which is it's interesting because when you think about hi- uh, the history of Hollywood, yeah. one of kind of the components that has been there is the data about the people that are coming to watch the films, and yeah. seemingly it almost feels like Hollywood has forgotten that to a degree. Hollywood has ignored data for so long; it's really amazing. They've really. You know, it's really been a business driven by the guts and the taste of the people who run studios. People like Amy Pascal, who ran Sony for a long time, who's a big character in my book. They, they, they would call it the Amy factor, meaning Sony didn't make a movie that Amy didn't want to make. It's just that simple. And a- Amy didn't care about data. She cared about, you know, the filmmakers she loved, the, the scripts that she believed in. Now, Amy has a great taste, you know, and she's not just an elitist. She made Adam Sandler comedies. She made right. a broad, you know, she made Spider-Man. She made all sorts of movies. But ultimately... You know, it was based on her gut. And on the one hand, you know, this is an artistic, creative business. You can't just be driven by data because data won't tell you what the next thing is going to be. Right. On the other hand, um, ignoring what your audience wants is crazy for any business, you know, and it can lead to a lot of missteps. It can lead to being loyal to Adam Sandler and Will Smith for too long. It can lead to having too many white men making your films or being represented in your films and not telling the stories of 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 diverse of the diversity of your moviegoers because frankly there's not enough diverse people working at the studios so hollywood is just now starting to catch up to be like huh maybe we should pay attention to this data that we can now get for the first time about who our audience is and what they want and what perspectives they have that we're blind to so with all the the, the changes that are going on in hollywood how is that impacting the tv industry you touched on it briefly for a second ago because more and more people are willing to sit on their smartphones to watch content mm-hmm. than they are to go to the movie theater right well so this this is a book about the movie business but you can't talk about movies now without talking about tv sure yeah he has changed our film going behavior in multiple ways one is exactly what you said why get why get up and go to the theater anymore. I mean, don't forget, when we were all growing up, TV was the idiot box, right? TV yes. was the lowest common denominator garbage. And you went to theaters because if you wanted to see intelligent, original, interesting content, visual content, that was the only place to go see it. TV has changed because the economics of TV have changed. TV used to be advertising-driven. And when you're, when you're, when you're raison d'etre is advertising, you want to reach the biggest audience possible, which means you need to be kind of bland and inoffensive to get as many people as possible. You don't care if they like it a lot. You just care that they don't change the channel. Now it's driven by subscriptions. You subscribe to HBO. You subscribe to Netflix. You subscribe to cables. You can get FX or AMC. So they care about passion. They care about you really, you really have to like what you're watching. And they'd rather have 3 million people who love it than 10 million people who feel eh about it. So that means they're, they got to take more creative risks and do more interesting content that will make people excited and care about it. That's, that's the reason we have the golden age of television, the reason we're getting such great content on TV. And once TV becomes great, then, you know, it's why, why go to the movies to see it? Why go, get, you know, get out of your living room, pay a babysitter if you need one, drive there, yeah. pay, for, pay for your $15 each tickets, pay for food to take a risk that maybe this movie will be good and maybe it won't. Whereas you could just turn on Netflix, watch the latest show or miniseries. The marginal cost is zero. 
And uh, if it's good, you, you, didn't, you didn't have to leave it didn't, or spend any money. And if you don't like it, just turn it off. No big deal. When you said consolidation, do you expect uh, the Amazons and the Netflix to be looking to purchase uh, a, a Hollywood studio or some sort of entity like that? You know, it's possible. There's always rumors about it. Um, I actually think it's unlikely because when you, buy, when you buy a studio, you, you're not just buying their content and their library, but you're buying this whole operation that's, that is kind of irrelevant to these tech right. companies. You know, they right. have theatrical distribution around the world. They have DVD distribution. They have huge overhead. They have these big lots. And I don't know that the Netflixes and Amazons and Apples care about that. If they have a few billion dollars to spend, they can just, they can just replicate and build up the parts that they need, the content production parts, and they can ignore the parts that they don't want. Yeah. So I think we're more likely to see that. Ben, great talking to you again. I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. I, it was a real pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Thank you, Ben Fritz. The book is uh, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. The book is available in bookstores and online now for your purchase. And again, you can follow uh, Ben Fritz on uh, the Hollywood industry at uh, The Wall Street Journal. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 